Chapter 9b of The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter 9b A Notable Speech by Lincoln, Advice to Kansas Belligerents, Honor in Politics, Anecdote of Lincoln and Yates, Contest for the U.S. Senate in 1855, Lincoln's Defeat sketched by members of the legislature argue as you will and as long as you will this is the naked front and aspect of the measure and in this aspect it could not but produce agitation slavery is founded in the selfishness of man's nature opposition to it in his love of justice these principles are an eternal antagonism and when brought into collision so fiercely as slavery extension brings them shocks throws and convulsions must ceaselessly follow repeal the missouri compromise repeal all compromises repeal the declaration of independence repeal all past history you still cannot repeal human nature it still will be the abundance of man's heart that slavery extension is wrong and out of the abundance of his heart his mouth will continue to speak when mr pettit in connection with his support of the nebraska bill called the Declaration of Independence a self-evident lie. He only did what consistency and candor require all other Nebraska men to do. Of the forty-odd Nebraska senators who sat present and heard him, no one rebuked him. If this had been said among Marion's men, Southerners though they were, what would have become of the man who said it? If this had been said to the men who captured Andre, the man who said it, would probably have been hung sooner than Andre was. If it had been said in old Independence Hall seventy-eight years ago, the very doorkeeper would have throttled the man, and thrust him into the street. Thus we see the plain, unmistakable spirit of that early age towards slavery was hostility to the principle, and toleration only by necessity. But now it is to be transformed into a sacred rite. Nebraska brings it forth places it on the high road to extension and perpetuity, and with a pat on its back says to it, Go, and God speed you. Henceforth it is to be the chief jewel of the nation, the very figurehead of the ship of state. Little by little, but steadily as man's march to the grave, we have been giving the old for the new faith. Nearly eighty years ago we began by declaring that all men are created equal. But now, from that beginning, we have run down to that other declaration, that for some men to enslave others is a sacred right of self-government. In our greedy chase to make profit of the negro, let us beware lest we cancel and tear to pieces even the white man's charter of freedom. If all earthly power were given me, I should not know what to do as to the existing institution. My first impulse would be to free all the slaves and send them to Liberia, to their own native land. But if they were all landed there in a day, they would all perish in the next ten days. And there are not surplus shipping and surplus money enough to carry them there in many times ten days. What then? Free them all, and keep them among us as underlings? Is it quite certain that this betters their condition? I think I would not hold one in slavery at any rate. Yet the point is not clear enough for me to denounce people upon. What next? 
free them, and make them politically and socially our equals? My own feelings will not admit of this. And if mine would, we well know that those of the great mass of white people will not. A universal feeling, whether well or ill-founded, cannot be safely disregarded. We cannot then make them equals. It does seem to me that systems of gradual emancipation might be adopted, but for their tardiness in this I will not undertake to judge our brethren of the South. Our Republican robe is soiled, trailed in the dust. Let us repurify it. Let us turn and wash it white, in the spirit, if not the blood, of the Revolution. Let us turn slavery from its claims of moral right back upon its existing legal rights and its arguments of necessity. Let us return it to the position our fathers gave it, and there let it rest in peace. Let us re-adopt the Declaration of Independence, and with it the practices and policy which harmonize with it. Let North and South, let all Americans, let all lovers of liberty everywhere join in the great and good work. If we do this, we shall not only have saved the Union, but we shall have so saved it as to make and to keep it forever worthy of the saving. We shall have so saved it, that the succeeding millions of free and happy people, the world over, shall rise up and call us blessed to the latest generations. It was in one of these speeches that Lincoln's power of repartee was admirably illustrated by a most laughable retort made by him to Douglas. Mr. Ralph E. Hoyt, who was present, says, In the course of his speech Mr. Douglas had said, The Whigs are all dead. For some time before speaking Lincoln sat on the platform with only his homely face visible to the audience above the high desk before him. On being introduced, he arose from his chair and proceeded to straighten himself up. For a few seconds I wondered when and where his head would cease its ascent. But at last it did stop, and honest old Abe stood before us. He commenced, "'Fellow citizens, my friend Mr. Douglas made the startling announcement to-day that the Whigs are all dead. If this be so, fellow citizens, you will now experience the novelty of hearing a speech from a dead man. And I suppose you might properly say, in the language of the old hymn, Hark! From the tombs a doleful sound. This set the audience fairly wild with delight, and at once brought them into full confidence with the speaker. Hating slavery though he did, Lincoln was steadily opposed to all forms of unlawful or violent opposition to it. At about the time of which we are speaking, a party of abolitionists in Illinois had become so excited over the Kansas struggle that they were determined to go to the aid of the free state men in that territory. As soon as Lincoln learned of this project, he opposed it strongly. When they spoke to him of liberty, justice, and God's higher law, he replied in this temperate and judicious strain, "'Friends!' You are in the minority, in a sad minority, and you can't hope to succeed, reasoning from all human experience. You would rebel against the government, and redden your hands in the blood of your countrymen. If you have the majority, as some of you say you have, you can succeed with the ballot, throwing away the bullet. You can peaceably, then, redeem the government and preserve the liberties of mankind, through your votes and voice and moral influence. Let there be peace. 
In a democracy, where the majority rule by the ballot through the forms of law, these physical rebellions and bloody resistances are radically wrong, unconstitutional, and are treason. Better bear the ills you have than fly to those you know not of. Our own Declaration of Independence says that governments long established should not be resisted for trivial causes. Revolutionize through the ballot-box, and restore the government once more to the affection and hearts of men, by making it express, as it was intended to do, the highest spirit of justice and liberty. Your attempt, if there be such, to resist the laws of Kansas by force, will be criminal and wicked and all your feeble attempts will be follies, and end in bringing sorrow on your heads, and ruin the cause you would freely die to preserve." No doubt was felt of Lincoln's sympathies. Indeed, he is known to have contributed money to the Free State cause. But it is noticeable that in this exciting episode he showed the same coolness, wisdom, moderation, love of law and order, that so strongly characterized his conduct in the stormier period of the Civil War and without which it is doubtful if he would have been able to save the nation. Some interesting recollections of the events of this stirring period, and of Lincoln's part in them, are given by Mr. Paul Selby, for a long-time editor of the State Journal at Springfield, and one of Lincoln's old-time friends and political associates. While Abraham Lincoln had the reputation of being inspired by an almost unbounded ambition, says Mr. Selby, it was of that generous quality which characterized his other attributes, and often led him voluntarily to restrain its gratification, in deference to the conflicting aspirations of his friends. All remember his magnanimity towards Colonel Edward D. Baker, when the latter was elected to Congress from the Springfield District in 1844, and the frankness with which he informed Baker of his own desire to be a candidate in 1846, when for the only time in his life he was elected to that body. In 1852, Richard Yates of Jacksonville, then recognized as one of the rising young orators and statesmen of the West, was elected to Congress for the second time from the Springfield District. It was during the term following this election that the Kansas-Nebraska issue was precipitated upon the country by Senator Douglas, in the introduction of his bill for the repeal of the Missouri Compromise. Yates, in obedience to his impulses, which were always on the side of freedom, took strong ground against the measure, notwithstanding the fact that a majority of his constituents, though originally Whigs, were strongly conservative, as was generally the case with people who were largely of Kentucky and Tennessee origin. In 1854 the Whig party, which had been divided on the Kansas-Nebraska question, began to manifest symptoms of disintegration while the Republican Party, though not yet known by that name, began to take form. At this time I was publishing a paper at Jacksonville, Yates's home, and although from the date of my connection with it in 1852 it had not been a political paper, the introduction of a new issue soon led me to take decided ground on the side of free territory. Lincoln at once sprang into prominence as one of the boldest, most vigorous, and eloquent opponents of Mr. Douglas's measure which was construed as a scheme to secure the admission of slavery into all the new territories of the United States. At that time Lincoln's election to a seat in Congress would probably have been very grateful to his ambition, as well as acceptable in a pecuniary point of view, and his prominence and ability had already attracted the eyes of the whole State toward him in a special degree. 
having occasion to visit Springfield one day, while the subject of the selection of a candidate was under consideration among the opponents of the Kansas-Nebraska bill, I encountered Mr. Lincoln on the street. As we walked along, the subject of the choice of a candidate for Congress to succeed Yates came up. When I stated that many of the old-line Whigs and anti-Nebraska men in the western part of the district were looking to him as an available leader, while he seemed gratified by the compliment, he said, No. Yates has been a true and faithful representative, and should be returned. Yates was renominated, and although he ran ahead of his ticket, yet so far had the disorganization of the Whig party then progressed, and so strong a foothold had the pro-slavery sentiment obtained in the district, that he was defeated by Major Thomas L. Harris, of Petersburg, whom he had defeated when he first entered the field as a candidate four years before. While it is scarcely probable that Lincoln, if he had been a candidate, would have changed the result, yet the prize was one which he would then have considered worth contending for, and if the nomination could have been tendered him without doing injustice to his friend, he would undoubtedly have accepted it gladly and thrown all the earnestness and ability which he possessed into the contest. This instance only illustrates a feature of his character which has so often been recognized and commented upon, his generosity toward those among his political friends who might be regarded as occupying the position of rivals. In 1854, during Lincoln's absence from Springfield, he was nominated as a candidate for the state legislature. It was in one of Lincoln's periods of profound depression, and it was with the greatest difficulty that he could be persuaded to accept the nomination. I went to see him," says one of his close political friends, Mr. William Jane, in order to get his consent to run. This was at his house. He was then the saddest man I ever saw, the gloomiest. He walked up and down the floor, almost crying, and to all my persuasions to let his name stand in the paper, he said, No, I can't. You don't know all. I say you don't begin to know one half, and that's enough. His name, however, was allowed to stand, and he was elected by about six hundred majority. But Lincoln was then extremely desirous of succeeding General James Shields, whose term in the United States Senate was to expire the following March. The Senate chamber had long been the goal of his ambition. He summed up his feelings in a letter to Hon. N. B. Judd, some years after, saying, I would rather have a full term in the United States Senate than the Presidency. He therefore resigned his seat in the legislature, the fact that a majority in both houses was opposed to the Nebraska bill, allowing him to do so without injury to his party, and became a candidate for the Senate. But the act was futile. When the legislature met in February 1855 to make choice of a senator, a clique of anti-Nebraska Democrats held out so firmly against the nomination of Lincoln that there was danger of the Whigs leaving their candidate altogether. In this dilemma Lincoln was consulted. Mr. Lamon thus describes the incident. Lincoln said, unhesitatingly, You ought to drop me and go for Trumbull. That is the only way you can defeat Madison. Judge Logan came up about that time and insisted on running Lincoln still. But the latter said, If you do, you will lose both Trumbull and myself, and I think the cause in this case is to be preferred to men. We adopted his suggestion and took up Trumbull and elected him, although it grieved us to the heart to give up Lincoln. 
Mr. Parks, a member of the legislature at this time, and one of Lincoln's intimate friends, said, Mr. Lincoln was very much disappointed, for I think it was the height of his ambition to get into the United States Senate. Yet he manifested no bitterness toward Mr. Judd or the other anti-Nebraska Democrats by whom politically he was beaten, but evidently thought their motives were right. He told me several times afterwards that the election of Trumbull was the best thing that could have happened. Hon. Elijah M. Haynes, ex-speaker of the Illinois Legislature, a resident of the state for over half a century, and one of Lincoln's early friends, was a member of the Legislature during the senatorial struggle just referred to. His familiarity with all its incidents lends value to his distinct and vivid recollections. Abraham Lincoln had been elected a member of the House on the Fusion Ticket, with Judge Stephen T. Logan, for the district composed of Sangamon County writes Mr. Haynes, but it being settled that the Fusion Party, which was an anti-Douglas combination, including Whigs, Free Soilers, Know-Nothings, etc., would have a majority of the two houses on ballot. Mr. Lincoln was induced to become a candidate for United States Senator for the support of that party. He therefore did not qualify as a member. Although Mr. Lincoln never acquired the reputation of being an office-seeker, yet it happened frequently that his name would be mentioned in connection with some important position. He became, quite early in life, one of the prominent leaders of the Whig party of the state, and for a long time, in connection with a few devoted associates, led the forlorn hope of that party. During a period of about twenty years there was seldom more than one Whig member in the Illinois delegation of congressmen. The Sangamon district in which Mr. Lincoln lived was always sure to elect a Whig member when the party was united, but it contained quite a number of aspiring Whig orators, and there was a kind of understanding between them that no one who attained the position of representative in Congress should hold it longer than one term, that he would then give way for the next favorite. Mr. Lincoln had held the position once, and its return to him was far in the future. The fusion triumph in the legislature was considered by the Whig element as a success, in which they acknowledged great obligation to Mr. Lincoln. That element in the fusion party therefore urged his claims as the successor of General Shields. His old associate and tried friend in the Whig cause, Judge Logan, became the champion of his interests in the House of Representatives. I was present and saw something of Mr. Lincoln during the early part of the session, before the vote for Senator was taken. He was around among the members much of the time. His manner was agreeable and unassuming. He was not forward in pressing his case upon the attention of members. Yet before the interview would come to a close, some allusion to the senatorship would generally occur, when he would respond in some such way as this, "'Gentlemen, that is rather a delicate subject for me to talk upon. But I must confess that I would be glad of your support for the office, if you shall conclude that I am the proper person for it.' When he had finished, he would generally take occasion to withdraw before any discussion on the subject arose. When the election of senator occurred in February, Lincoln received forty-five votes, the highest number of any of the candidates, and within six votes of enough to secure his election. This was on the first ballot, after which Lincoln's votes declined. After the ninth ballot, Mr. Lincoln stepped forward, or, as Mr. Richmond expresses it, leaned forward from his position in the lobby, and requested the committee to withdraw his name. On the tenth ballot, Judge Trumbull received fifty-one votes and was declared elected. Thus were Lincoln's political ambitions again frustrated, but their realization was only delayed for the far grander triumph that was soon to come, 
although no man then foresaw its coming. End of chapter 9b Recording by Bill Borst